Beloveds, so let's turn to the, the, the letter to the Hebrews. I'm going to do a ridiculous thing today. I'm going to try and preach from verse 5 down to verse 14, all in one section. I know everybody lists their eyebrows, I'm like, yeah, good luck with that. We know you. Um, but we'll try. Okay. So remembering, beginning with, for those who weren't here last time, uh, this book or this letter, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know the, the author of it. We don't even know the recipients of it. We know kind of who it was to. It was to the Hebrews, the Jewish Christians. It's thought to be, thought to be one of the earliest letters that have been written. It's obviously written by a Hebrew, by a Jewish person to Jewish believers. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have anything for you and for me. It does mean that it's shrouded in mystery. There are things there that are cultural that you and I won't get. I saw this really funny video, or at least my, my email sent me a very funny video on, on Reels. Not what it is on Instagram. Uh, and it was a, uh, an Irish mother coming to another Irish woman, or sorry, I say, an Irish older lady coming to another Irish lady. And she had this cake. And it was a beautiful cream Irish cake, you know, buttercream cake. Oh, look great. I thought to myself, my granny used to do those. Oh, they were lovely. And, this beautiful, and the Irish lady went to the second Irish lady and she says, would you like a little piece of cake? And the Irish lady was like, oh, that cake looks lovely. Oh, I don't know. And there was this back and forth, and the, the second lady was saying, no, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't have any. It looks so good. And the first lady was like, oh, go on, have a little bit of cake, go on. And they went back and forth until the second lady went, yeah, okay, I'll have a little bit of cake. And so she sliced. And, and that's the, the, the cultural understanding of how you accept something in Ireland. No, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't. No, 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 no. Oh, go on, go on. Oh, no. And then it compared it to... The same scene in Germany. And they had this German lady asking a second German lady, would you like some cake? The same cake looked beautiful. And she said in German, I can't say it, but you know, said in German, would you like some cake? And yes, thank you. Okay. And she cut the cake and she gave it to her. And then it compared the two. They had the Irish lady mother asking the German lady, would you like some cake? And so the Irish lady went, would you, would you like some cake? And the German lady went, yes. And the Irish lady got really offended. Oh, oh, well, that was very forward of you. Very bold of you. Very rude. And she gave, but the, the whole idea was she wanted to give her cake. And uh, because the lady said yes straight away, she got offended. And we understand because that's cultural. There are cultural understandings cultural ways of doing things that, that as a, an Irishman I don't always appreciate or understand Finnish culture. They used to call me a, 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 a nose horning, you know, like a, a rhinoceros because I would stamp through all the traditional cultures and stuff like this. I wouldn't understand anything here. Still don't normally. Or I choose to ignore them. Um, but when we read the book of Hebrews, when we examine it, we must understand that there are certain nuances that you and I will never really get. We might understand them, but we'll not appreciate them. Same as with the Finnish language. You know, you could understand what's written on the Finnish language, but not necessarily understand what's meant by it. We all understand that, don't we? You say something, but it really means something else. Because unless you're part of that culture, you don't really get it. That happens to me all the time. I kind of look blank and go, what? Same thing with humor. And so, but when we're reading the book of Hebrews, it's very important to understand who it's written to and why it was written, when it was written. I talked about this last time. First of all, it's written to three categories of people. To believing Jews. To Jews who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour and now are suffering because of that proclamation of faith. They have been excluded from the temple. They have been excluded from temple worship. They are no longer willing or wanting to sacrifice. 
Because Jesus is their sacrifice. And they have been excluded from their culture. They have been excommunicated from their church. They have been put out. They are no longer regarded as Jews. In some sense. And so the author is writing to them. Second category are the people who have mentally accepted Jesus. They recognize that Jesus was a special person. Perhaps a prophet. But they haven't believed in him. They haven't come to salvation. They're still on the fence as it were. Perhaps motivated by their fear. What will people say? Do you remember in the, the Gospels? We looked at it in Luke a long time ago. The Bible says that there were many people who wanted to follow Jesus, but they didn't because they were afraid that the Jews would put them out of the synagogue. They liked what they saw. It, it, it touched them in their heart, but their fear of people was so strong, it prevented them going the whole way. And so the writer... Or should we say the Holy Spirit through the writer is speaking to the Hebrews who are on the fence. They they know the truth, but they're not willing because of fear to go all the way. And then the last group that he speaks to is to the unbelievers. Perhaps the children of the believers. Perhaps the wives or the husbands of the believers. Perhaps the the just normal people out there, the, the people still left in the religious system. He, but he's speaking to those people who have, they know about Jesus, but they have rejected him. They want no part of him. They close their ears and close their eyes. They turn their back and they denounce and deny Jesus. They would rather stay in the old system of sacrifices, of services, of rituals, than to embrace the freedom that comes through Jesus Christ. Those are the three categories that he's writing to. And so he he bursts, the writer bursts into the conversation. He makes a big splash. Like, have you ever been at a wedding? I've been to a few. And uh, whenever we're all having dinner and we're all talking and somebody wants to get someone's attention. If they want to, it's time for the speeches. And so the best man or the father of the bride or somebody, he stands up and he takes his fork or glass or whatever. And he goes, ding, 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 ding. And everybody's like, oh, oh, oh it's time for the speeches. We all, we all kind of like, oh, 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 stop talking. And Sarah usually hits me like that. No, shut up, guy. Because I, I have a problem. And uh and all of a sudden, we're all focused, aren't we? We all know what's about to happen. We're all paying attention. We're all waiting expectantly. And so, when the writer of the Hebrews makes these first statements, that's him banging the glass. That's him getting your attention. That's him focusing you into what he's about to say. And indeed, in the first four verses, really, he covers the entire theme of his letter. In the first, and I want to go, I want to preach that. I can feel I'm almost about to preach the same message as I did last time. But in the first four verses, he demonstrates that the Son is the final and supreme message from the Father. That in the olden days, in past times, God has hinted, God has did a what we would call a teaser campaign. Little bit, little bit, little bit. But it's all been leading to somewhere. It's all been leading to the grand reveal. The big noise. The release of the truth. And that grand reveal was in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was in the coming of the Son. God showed little bits of himself. He demonstrated. He whispered. He spoke in different ways and in different, through different people at different times. But now, in this time, the author says, right now, here and now, there is no other way. God speaks to us through his Son. It is the coming of the Son. It's not the coming of a servant 
or a slave. It's not the coming of a represent, representative. It is the coming of the son. It's like the, the owner comes. It's the big man. It's the important person. And he goes through, of course, and tells us a little bit about that son. And we looked at it again last time. The, the nature, the character, the supremacy, the greatestness. If that's a word, I don't know if it's a word, but we'll say it. Greatestness sounds good. The supreme revelation of God through the Son. And in the first four verses he describes the Son. But then he goes on to talk about the supremacy of the Son over angels. And for you and I, it's a bit weird. We're like, angels? We live in such a... An atheistic culture, such a spiritual, spiritualist, can I say spiritualist? Again, I'm making up words, but that's okay, I'm Irish. If Martin Luther can make up words and Tyndale can make up words, I can make up words too. It's, we live in a time when we judge things by what we see, scientifically. You know, two and two is four. There's no other concept. Everything is logical and we don't believe in alternative dimensions of spiritual beings that are all around us. That's just a little bit weird and freaky and strange. Or at least we don't behave as if we do. We don't, we don't function in a way that we're afraid. If, if a, a shadow passes the window, oh, is, it a, is it a demon? Is it a, is it a spirit? Is it... <gasps> but in the ancient world, the spiritual world was everything. The spiritual world was right there. You stepped out your door and you were in it. The two weren't separate. They were one. You were a part of that world. It was mixed. And for the mind, in the minds of the ancient Hebrews, there was no greater being in all of creation than an angel. They were the pinnacle of God's creation, apart from man, of course. But they were the ones who were around the throne of God. They were these great and mighty beings. We might even talk about them being mythical demigods, superhumans. Now, we, we don't really have demigods today, but we do have Marvel characters, don't we? Avengers, the Hulk, Spider-Man. And we have this new mythology of these superhuman beings with unlimited powers and great abilities. They're just children's stories for them. But, but in the ancient world, things like that were part of real life. They were part of, of the stories of these superhuman beings. Superhuman beings were. And so the writer here is, he wants to prove to the Jews, to his readers, about the supremacy of Jesus, of the, of the Son. The difference between the Son and those super beings. How much greater the Son is than those super beings. We're not talking about some small thing. He wants to establish in the minds of those that are hearing that the Son that you and I know as Jesus although the writer doesn't tell us that until 2 and 5, the Son is so much greater than these great beings. Now, the Jews, they knew their Old Testament, which was their Bible. For us, it's the Old Testament, but for them, it was the Bible. And when they looked up angels in their reference, and when they, they went and they tried to think, well, where in the Old Testament does it talk about angels? And they looked and... There was the angel, remember the two angels who walked throughout the camp and killed, was it 10,000 people? There was the angel that passed over Egypt and killed all the firstborn. There was the, the time and time again, we were, were demonstrated that these are superhuman, amazing beings. They're, they're great and terrible and frightening. Nothing in all of nature is as powerful as this, these angelic creatures. And yet here in Hebrews, 
the writer wants you to understand that the Son is greater than even the greatest of all beings. Indeed, the Son is the creator of those beings. In verse 4 will begin, just because that's where the, the, the overlap happens. And having become much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And then he says, for which of the angels did he ever say? I think that's very interesting. Did he ever say, the writer of the, the epistle is saying that the Old Testament is God speaking? Because he quotes scripture. You are my God, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The writer is saying that this is God speaking. Now in the context that we know that it's uh, from Psalm 2, I think. Yeah, it's Psalm 2 verse 7. Talking to David. But yet the, the Holy Spirit through the writer is able to then show us that God is speaking here. And that God is speaking not just to David, but through David to the one who was promised, to the one who was to come, to the Messiah, to the Son. And he's showing here that God has never said to any angel, to any created being, that you are my Son. That's a powerful expression in the ancient world. It has all those legal connotations. It has all those adopted connotations. It means that all that I have belongs to you. You are flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood. You are my strength. The, my strong right arm. All those kind of really powerful language. And so the writer, the Holy Spirit through the writer is pointing out that God has never said... And has only ever said these things to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Son. Today I have begotten you. And that's a powerful word. Uh, there's, so much, there's so much discussion about that. Begotten you. Of course, he's taken it from the Greek. He's using the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation. He's not speaking from the Hebrew. And here it means that... If we, if we were the Old Testament people, we'd say, and Kyle knew Sarah, and from them they begot Amen, and Vingo, and begot. It means that to come from, the natural production from. The, 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 we understand, you know, man meets woman, they fall in love, they get married, they have children. And there's the natural product of that union is a child. Well, here it's saying that. That Jesus, the Son, is the natural product of the Father. He's not a creation. I want you to see that. It's saying that he's not a creation. He's not one that the Father created. And I mean that by building. You and I are created. Constructed. Our God spoke and all of our reality came into being. We're created. But the Son was never created. Such a, a mystery so deep and, and hard for us to understand. But he's drawing the comparison that the angels don't have that boast. He wants you to understand that the one who is the final and fullest revelation of the Father was never created. There is this perfect, unique relationship between father and son. And that's what he's really pushing. This is a father and son relationship. Jesus is the true son, the son. Son. Not a son, the son of God. And then he goes on. And again, he, he hammers in that point. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. To which of the angels did God ever say that? He couldn't say it. Why? Because they are created beings. For all of their majesty, for all of their power, for all of their terribleness. Again, think of the angels from, the, from Ezekiel. 
the cherubim, seraphim, different kinds of angels. The word angel just simply means messenger or servant, one who is sent. And so you think of how those, those terrible creatures, those terrible beings appear and are. And indeed, in the Bible, anyone who ever meets an angel falls down as if they're dead, terrified. They're about to die out of fear. And the angel has to say, do not be afraid, and raises them up. Otherwise, they would die of a heart attack. And yet for all of their greatness over humanity, their greatness falls so far short than the sun. The son enjoys a unique relationship with the father, one that is unlike any other being, even the pinnacle of all of God's creation in the sense of the angelic forces. Those things that are above and beyond our ability to understand. And then verse 6, again, I'll be running through this because I do want to get through all four to, chapter, or to the end of the chapter today. Verse 6, and then again he brings the firstborn into the world. And he said, let all the angels of God worship him. The firstborn, I think that's very interesting. You know, Paul uses that expression, the firstborn. And many people have tried to use that one expression in this letter to prove that this was Paul speaking. I can't go that far, I don't know. Paul says that, that Jesus was the firstborn of creation. He talks about the firstborn of the resurrected and others. Here, the idea is not that he was the firstborn as in first out of the womb and everyone else follows, everyone's like him. But it's a, it's a, 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 a title, a position. He, he is the, the one in charge. He is the leader. He's not like everyone else. There's a mantle of, of rulingness. I think that's a word. Again, I'm kind of making up words today. On him that's unlike any other in all of creation, in all of time, in all of space. Jesus is unique. It also is a throwback to when Jesus was born. He was born in a manger through Mary. And when he was born, there were angels in attendance. We're told that. If you remember way back when we looked at Luke at the beginning of the, uh, the readings, it, all the angels gathered together. What was the response of the angels when Jesus was born? When he came into this created world, they worshipped and they worship big time. It wasn't a case of one angel was like, oh, this is really, oh, oh gosh, yeah, oh, appreciate that. That was, oh, gosh. Oh, I'm a little bit shocked. No, there were, Hosanna. It was like a football stadium of angels went crazy. You, know, you can just imagine. I, I'm sure you all think of them as being all like, oh. I imagine the angels like going for it. Like dawn on a football match. Gaia! You know, I, uh, there was just, there was absolute letting loose and they worshipped him at his birth. And the author, the Holy Spirit through the author is pushing on our minds. He's prodding us so that we understand that the Son, the one who was promised and the one who has come, the one whom we believe in, the Lord Jesus Christ, is unlike any other. He is great and mighty. Indeed, the greatest beings that exist, these mythical demigods, I don't mean that they are demigods, they're not. These creatures that are powerful and mighty and terrible, what was their response to the coming of the Son? They worshipped Him. They let loose and they worshipped Him. And then again, he says in verse 7, and of these angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers flames of fire. And again, I just want to hit this quick. 
because uh, I could get caught up in it. It says here, who makes his angels spirits. The word is wind. We translate it to spirit, but it means wind. And then he says, makes his ministers, his servants, flames of fire. And the idea is that they are, they are not of substance like you and I. Angels don't have substance. They're not flesh and blood as you and I. They are elemental. There's something extraordinary about them, but they're not like you and I. God has not allowed them to become like you and I, flesh and blood. There is something otherworldly and powerful in the idea of, of wind. Think of the whirlwind. Don't think of like a little breeze. Don't, don't, don't think of that. Think of the whirlwind. Think of the storm. Think of a tornado or a hurricane. That's the kind of wind that he's talking about. Don't think of a, a flame as a candle or a light, you know. Think of a blaze. Think of Australia last year with all those forest fires. Think of Northern California with all those forest fires. Try and stop that. Think of Kalioki this summer. Try and go up there and prevent that. Go and stop that. Go and take a cup of water with you and throw it on the fire and try and put it out. Take a blanket and you by yourself try and stop that. It's impossible. Imagine the foolish man who goes down to the Florida Keys and a hurricane is coming in. And not just some small hurricane, but class five, class six. You know, we're talking ripping the, the buildings from their, their foundations. And some man going down there and, and, and going, stop. Stop. Putting up a piece of paper or something to hold back the wind, you know? Putting up a blanket. Look okay, here, everyone, I'll protect you. I've got my umbrella. The foolishness of it. That's the picture he's trying to paint in your head. Though these, these spirits, they're powerful and they're mighty, but yet they are of no you can't grab them. Have you ever tried to grab the wind? Have you? Have you ever tried to grab a, a flame? Put your hand in the fire and, and pick it up? Hold it? You ever run around a field with a big net trying to catch the wind? You can't do it, can you? They, they do not enjoy the same privilege as the sun. There is a difference between the majesty of these beings and the absolute majesty of the Son. And he wants you to understand in whom you have believed. He wants you to, to understand the greatness of he, of the one who has come. And then he talks about the nature of the, the kingdom of the Son. But to the son, verse 8, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And here again, he, he's talking about the, the, the greatness of the nature of the kingdom of the son. Did you like how God begins verse 8? God speaking again. He says, capital H in my Bible. Your throne, O God. Not the throne of God. But God is saying to the Son, God. God is recognizing the divinity of the Son. And he's saying, your throne. I love that. It's like, it's. Not just a big chair covered in diamonds and gold, you know, not like the queen's chair with fur and stuff like this. But it's, it's a, a statement of empire. It's a statement of longevity. It's a statement of absolute power and authority and control. A throne isn't just a, a fancy chair that you sit in. A throne is a statement of authority. A throne is always high and you are always low. So if you go to visit a monarch, 
a king or a queen, their throne will always be on a, what's called a DS, a raised platform. And they will always be looking down at you and you will always be looking up at them. Because they're greater. And the throne is a, an indication of their power over you. Here, the Holy Spirit through the author telling the Hebrews, telling the church down through the ages, telling us today that to the Son, not to the angels, not to those principalities and powers of the air, but to the Son, that His throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. Do you always think to yourself, why do you always put in the second ever? You ever ask, I don't know, it's, it's forever not long enough. You're like, you're exaggerating. Forever and ever? What does that mean? For ages and for ages, forever and forever, without end. No matter what happens, no matter where we might go, it's forever, time and space. So it's not just forever in, in Finland. The kingdom of God will be forever here. His throne will be set up and he, he will rule in Israel forever. But in the rest of the world, it's you know kind of like, ooh. It's talking about time and space. It's talking in one place but in everywhere. It's talking about now and forever. It's ways that our minds don't really work. But he wants you to understand that it's, it's bigger than you can comprehend. His throne is endless. His rule is endless. And then it talks about the, the, the character of that kingdom. First of all, we see that it's endless. The sun will reign for forever and ever. And second, the second point he makes, a scepter of righteous is the scepter of your kingdom. It's a kingdom that is ruled righteously. And you think how immense the kingdom of Christ will be? It's going to be like all the world's kingdoms rolled into one. All America, Russia, China, Africa, and all those other rolled into one. And one person will be reigning over them. One person will make the laws. One person will make the decisions. And everyone else must obey you. And it's like, Phew, that's a lot of room for a lot of corruption. You know? If you have been following world politics. Think of American politics and the corruption that goes on there with all this dossiers and the stuff that goes on and you think to yourself, and nobody's being held accountable or just the low levels, you know, they talk about Clinton and all these other people we don't care about. And you think, will, there, will they ever see justice for the crimes they've committed? They get away with it. They're in power and authority, but they get away with it. And we just kind of accept it, don't we? The people in authority, they get away with this kind of stuff because they control the system. It's just part of it. We accept it. But in the kingdom of Christ, the Bible tells us that its character will be one of righteousness. Only right things will be tolerated and will happen. The character of the nature of Christ's kingdom will be a righteous one. The idea of a scepter means absolute control. Bash you if you don't do what I'm telling you. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. So we see again that the nature of the kingdom is a righteous one. The God loves righteousness. Those things that are right, not according to our pattern of what is right and wrong, but according to what God's pattern of what is right and wrong is. And then he says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. This isn't a, a, a coordination. This is the, the nature of the kingdom isn't just one of righteousness. It's not just one of, of robot controlled, you know, that we are all robots and we do what is right. No, 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 no. But it, there's this, the idea of oil of gladness, it, it's like being happy. Again, think of a wedding. 
when we're giving speeches and we've all had two or three glasses of champagne and we're all happy. I'm not saying inebriated or drunk or anything this year, but we are merry. I've been listening to Christmas songs recently, and so the word merry is now part of my, you know, one of my boys asked me, Daddy, what does merry mean? Why do we have to have a merry Christmas? What's merry Christmas? Well, it means that we are happy. We are full of joy. We walk around singing. And boys are like, Dad, it's November. It's not time to listen to Christmas songs. It's time to listen to Christmas songs, Kyle says. The nature of the kingdom isn't one of just black and white and harsh and hard. Oh, you did something wrong, therefore I punish you. Foobaday. No, the kingdom, it's, it's joyful and it's happy and it's light and we enjoy it. So much more superior is the kingdom of Christ. And then again, he goes on in verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands and they will perish, but you will remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed and you will be are the same. You and your years will not fail. The idea here is in the ancient world, they believed that the world was indestructible. You could change it, but you couldn't destroy it. That nature was much more superior than human beings. They didn't have the atom bomb. They didn't have this idea where we could, we could control nature. Where we dominated nature. But rather, they were dominated by nature. You imagine you're living in a little fishing village somewhere in the Mediterranean. A huge storm gale comes in and all of a sudden, floop, your village is gone. You think your forest fire comes from nowhere, vloop, your village is gone. Sickness comes from somewhere from you don't know where, plague, dirty water, malnutrition. Something comes along, vloop, your village is gone. Nature is taken. And there's this, the idea that the world in which we live was a great and terrible place. The mountains so big and vast, you know, when my grandfather's grandfather walked the earth, those mountains stood there. When my grandchildren's grandchildren walked the earth, those mountains will still be there. There is this consistency with the world, this unchanging element. The boys and I, we were, some of my little boys and I, we were in La Lampas, what's it called? The Lamas Lampi, I don't know what it's section some right there somewhere by Chisk. Lampus Yarave or something. Thank you, son. And we were walking and there's lots of these old stone walls. You know where they've cleared the fields of all the stones and they, they put the, the, the stones on either side of the walls and they're just old and beautiful, lots of texture and moss, and we find all kinds of all kinds of find some animal poo and stuff. We were looking at it. And I was walk, we walk along, and I said to my boys, "You know, boys, when those stones are as old as the world, they of course they weren't always there. They've been there for I don't know how many hundreds of years. I don't know how long, hundred, two hundred years. But the stones themselves are from creation. God spoke, and those they they were formed. They're the bones of the earth. They were there existing." When our great-grandparents were still running around in furs and not able to read or write and grunting. And when we pass away, if the Lord does not return, and we turn to dust and our children pass and their children pass, those stones will still be there. They might be covered up. They might be hidden away, but the stones will still be there. There is a consistency and a life. And in the ancient world... There was nothing more durable than the, the creation around us. Hence why they, they built things out of stone. They called them living rocks. You dug things out of mountains. They were living stones. They weren't just, they weren't, you and I think of just stone. They thought of them as alive and as real. And here, the writer is telling us that... The kingdom of the sun will outlast 
the creation. Not only will it outlast, but the, the Son was the very one who laid the foundation. This is the one in whom you have trusted. This is the one in whom, the one whom you know, Jesus. We're all too familiar with Jesus, aren't we? We're all, we, we reduce him down to being our best friend, our disinterested relative. The guy that we see once a month, perhaps, or, you know. And we, we distance ourselves from him and we reduce him in worth. And, and our hearts become slow and hardened and deadened to the reality of who he really is. Of how important he is. Of how much a privilege we have received in our knowledge and relationship with him. And the writer, the Holy Spirit through the writer to the Hebrews, to us down through the ages today. Wants you to really understand who the son is. And how much more supreme he is. He's not some small thing. He's not some temporary thing. He's not some little cog in a machine. He's not some far and distant ruler. Now, we all know rulers today, don't we? If I was to mention Joe Biden, we all know who Joe Biden is. If I was to mention Trumpy, we all know who Donald Trump is. Uh, Vladimir Putin, we all know who Vladimir, uh, the Chinese guy whom I can't pronounce his name, but we all kind of know who he is. We know who those people are. Have you ever met them? Nah. Nah. And how long will Joe Biden rule in America? Well, how, many, how long is he supposed to rule? How long will Putin rule for as long as Putin wants? Because Putin's uh, Putin. Or un- until God says otherwise, let's say that way. But the... The kingdom of Christ, the reign of Christ, goes so much beyond. It goes from before the foundation of the earth, because he existed before he laid the foundation. And it will exist after this world has ceased to exist. In the ancient world, at least in the Mediterranean world, the idea of end days was unique to Hebrews. Was unique. People had ideas of rebirth and changing, but the idea that all things will one day pass away was unique. Same as monotheism, the idea of one God, unique to, he- to the Hebrews. So when he's saying this, it's shocking to us pagans. But the Hebrews, they're like, well, that's, yeah. And that the kingdom of Christ supersedes is greater, is more of more important. Look around you. Look around you and understand that the heavens and the earth, which are the product of God's creation, will one day stop existing. This world and all that we know, the Bible says, will melt away like wax. It says that the heavens will, will roll up. You know, like one of those roll garden, like a scroll. You know, Good morning. That's how fast it will go when it happens. I like where it says, and like a cloak, you will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same for your, your years will not fail. Jesus is greater than the mountains and the seas. Jesus is greater than the the cosmos. When you look out and you look at the stars at night and you think, wow, how far they are, how beautiful they are. But you, and you consider the distance before, between them all, however long they took to get there. Uh, the Bible tells us that Jesus is greater than them and longer lived than them and that all of them will one day perish. <laughs> And it will begin again. His years will not fail. This is the Son. This is the one who is so much more supreme, so much more greater than the angels. And he's trying to demonstrate to you 
trying to get it into your head that this is not a normal person. Don't take him for granted. Don't be casual in your attitude or in your approach to him. Don't treat him just like a story from a book. Like a legend that you once heard. Oh, let me tell you about the story that I heard. That all was great. He's saying, though he may not be here, he's here. And he's so much more frightening than the wind or the fire. He's so much more greater than the mountain. So much more awesome than the ocean. I don't know if any of you have ever been on a fishing boat. When I was a young man, I worked on the fishing boats. And we would spend three, four weeks out at sea fishing. I hated it. Oh, oh. Ooh, splash, 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 splash. I not a, was not a good fisherman. Was not a good fisherman. I was only 17 at the time. And, but it was good money. And you had to work hard. And we would go out into the Atlantic. So we'd go around the coast of Ireland and go out into the Atlantic. And we'd go out into the deep blue where you can't see land. And there's nothing except waves and dolphins sometimes, which are pretty cool. And whales, but didn't see any whales, seen dolphins. And you're out there, and sometimes the water is flat, and sometimes it's choppy, and sometimes it's stormy. And there's this feeling that you get, this, this um, experience you get when you're out in the deep blue, and there's no land, there's no birds, there's no wind, and it's flat, and you're sitting there in the boat, and the nets are down, and you're just, you've got nothing to do, you're just waiting. You can scrub the deck or something, but just waiting. And some of the boys go in, they're swimming in the water. I could never go swimming in the water because it was too deep. I was like, yeah, I don't know what's down there. Sharks or something. Octopuses. No. But there's this awesome experience where you realize how little you are. How little. And that's only in like 20 miles off the coast of Ireland. I mean... Again, we, 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 we drive that way an hour, we're, we're back to Ireland. But if I thought, thought to myself, I've, we were out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Out in the middle of nowhere. Wow. In the deep blue sea. How little. And it brings this realisation of how small you are. How really insignificant. How you really are just a, a speck on the back of an elephant. And so here we're being instructed of how great Christ is and how magnificent he is and how overwhelming he is. And he wants you to really get that. He's pressing on you the bigness of Jesus because we have the tendency to make him little, to reduce him to meek and mild and humble and broken and where he becomes our servant, where we we begin to live in such a way where he is no longer king over us, but we reign over him. Where he is no longer the son of God, but rather that he is simply a servant of God. Now, we may not articulate it, we may not speak it out, we may not think it that way, but certainly in our behaviors... We demonstrate that truth. And then he says, finally, here in verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said? And again, when he asks that question, the answer, of course, is he has never. He has never. You'll understand that. He's never said that. It's just a, a polite way of saying, um, look, he's never said that these people. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. We understand that there is the completion of the kingdom. That there will come a time one day when all of creation, when all of those who are the enemies of Christ, and I think that's very telling. He doesn't break it into any other other subgenre. Those who are his and those who are his enemies. And the idea of 
means to conquer, to take control of, to throw down. It isn't a question of you and I coming to Christ and Him putting His feet on us. It means all those who are in rebellion will one day be forced to bow. It means one day Christ's kingdom will forcibly take control. That he will rule in power without any competition. And all those who set themselves, all those who reject, all those who deny. Remember who he's talking to, the three groups, the believers, the undecided and the rejecters. And he's saying to them, there will come a time when all of those who have set themselves up as the rejecters, as the enemies of Jesus, as the ones who are reluctant to accept his rule, they will be thrown down and Jesus will put his feet on them as a demonstration of his supremacy over them. We're thinking, well, that's very rude. That's very rude. You don't even put your feet on me. You don't understand how great he is and how insignificant we are. If you think, well, he's not going to put his feet on me. My Levi hates feet. That's great. My Levi, you put your feet, ooh, and he's like, and he chews his own feet. But, but you put your feet anywhere near him and he gets all like panicking. Oh, no, no. Jesus will one day, physically or metaphorically, I do not know which, but it is a demonstration of his power over those who reject him. It is an absolute signal that he has conquered them They who set up themselves as king, he has authority over them. And then finally, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And again, he's talking about the angels. He's talking about those spirits, those winds, those flames that he addressed earlier. He's telling us what they are. That they are just ministering. The word there means serving. They are but servants. They were created for a a purpose. They have limited authority in what they can do. They can only do what they're told. They can't do anything other than that. They have no authority to own. Nothing they... Nothing they they work with or deal with is theirs. They are just the serving spirits. Sent forth, and I like that, sent forth. They are told what to do. They don't have the freedom. You and I, we we, we believe that we have the freedom of free will. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. Nobody can stop me. To an extent, that's true. A lion in a cage is the freedom to go wherever the lion wants. In the cage. A man in prison can go wherever he wants in his prison cell or in the jail as long as it's in the prison cell or the jail. We are limited in our freedom. We are limited. And also according to our own tastes. Spurgeon tells a great story of you can dress a pig up in a tuxedo and lay out a banquet before it and then put at the end of the table a bucket of slop of all the leftover foods, all the scrapings, all the the potato peelings and the carrot tops and all the slime and slop. And you open the door and that that pig that's dressed in the tuxedo in the the suit comes in and he doesn't rush up to the table and suddenly go, oh, super good job. Wonderful meal, everyone. No, that pig rushes direct to the bucket of slop and throws his face into it and begins to eat like a pig because, believe it or not, he's a pig. And by nature, he must behave like a pig. Human beings, by nature, must behave like human beings. And we have been warped 
because of Adam's sin and because of the inheritance. If you think, whenever you, if you make a mistake at the beginning of a project, but at the end of the project, normally the mistake's so much more. Have you ever tried to cut wrapping paper? No? I love wrapping paper. Y'all know I'm, I'm, I love my wrapping paper. I'm, I'm on ribbons. And so if you make a mistake, if your scissors are just like a little tiny bit, you end up that way. Or you go like this. You have to have the scissors straight to make that cut. And if we begin in a wrong place, we'll end in a wrong place. And therefore, we must always understand in whom we have believed. Jesus is not just an ordinary person. He is not just a prophet or a teacher or a wise man or a guru. He's not your friend. He's not just, he's not a brother whom you can kind of brush off. He's not like just one of us whom we can go, well, you know, he has some smart things to say sometimes, but you know, you know what it's like. The writer, the, the Holy Spirit through the writer really is impressing upon your mind. This is whom we have believed. This is how much more supreme he is. This is how, how great he is. This is how massive and awesome and majestic he is. That everything and everyone, even the pinnacle of God's creation in the sense of, and I know man is the pinnacle of God's creation, but other than man, angels. We don't think of ourselves as being the pinnacle of God's creation, you know. Superhumans, they're best. They're better than we are. These angels with their abilities and powers better than we are. And let me challenge you. Let me challenge you. Is this the Jesus that you know? Is this the Jesus that, that is the motivation of your faith? Do you live in the fear of the Lord which guides and motivates and determines the steps of your life that you walk in his ways and keep his statutes not because it's convenient to you or it it benefits your life not because you know everybody else is doing it but because he is who he is he's the son of god he is god your throne oh god he's god and therefore, he has the right to dictate to you. Now, the world, the flesh, the devil, they don't believe. They want to turn you aside. They want to pollute your faith. You know, the, the Bible tells us that the devil and his little whisper, first thing he'll ever say to you, did God say that though? Did God say that though? Is that really what? And then he carries on because, you know, you will not die. If you disobey God, you will not die. Don't listen to that one. It's the lie of the enemy. We are to put Christ first. Why? Because he is first. And any lifestyle that denies him his place upon the throne of our lives is a lifestyle that deviates us away from the truth and reduces us down. My next time we'll go on and we'll look at the warning Because the writer here, he writes in this wonderful style. He throws all this information at us. I mean, he rams it down our throat. There's no discussion. He just says, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. And then he comes with a strong exhortation. A strong warning. But we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it's always refreshing and it's always real. We thank you, Lord, that you challenge us in so many ways. Lord, we know that we're not perfect and you don't expect us to be perfect, Lord. Thank God for that. But, Lord, we do recognize that there are areas in our lives where we make conscious choices and we, Lord, are weak and we are afraid of people. Lord, and sometimes we just outright deny because we lift up our own desires and purposes and lord we pray forgive us and help us to repent lord we desire that one day when we meet you face to face when we stand before your throne and we have to give account of ourselves and the books are open and our our lives are reviewed 
that, Lord, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help us, Lord. We desire to be good and faithful. And, Lord, if we don't desire to be good and faithful, convict us of that sin. We pray, Lord, help us to understand that, that this life and all that we live, Lord, will not last forever. Lord, for those who do not know you, those who are still in the rejection, those, Lord, who are still, Lord, perhaps in their minds, recognize that you are, but in their hearts they, 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 they don't want, Lord. We pray, convict them of their sin. Help them, let them see the extent, Lord, of their sin and the danger that they are in, that they stand on the precipice of hell. Lord, that if you were to come this day unexpectedly, Lord, and without warning, like a mighty wind, like a flame of fire, that they would be lost for forever, that they would suffer in hell with, together with the devil and his angels. Lord, allow them to know the urgency of their position. Lord God, we pray that they might turn to you, that, Lord, they might repent of their sin, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Lord, that they might live to the rest of their days for your glory and your glory alone. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.